you're a baby. <laughs> no, that's not. I uh, I didn't draw that. <laughs> I can't draw. I didn't get that gene. That's Moses, the Ten Commandments. Really? <laughs> that's okay. Okay, we'll give you a Rorschach test later. All right. All right, this morning we're here to continue our series on the Ten Commandments. And this week it's the Third Commandment. Before we start, let me, let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are so good to us. You have given us your whole Bible that we can read and study for all of our life and still never finish it and still never, never plumb all the depths that you have for us. It is indeed an, an amazing thing. So help us this morning just to learn a little bit more, uh, to consider a little bit more than we know now, and to add to our wisdom and understanding of your word and who you are and who we are in you. And we pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, so this week is the, the third commandment. Um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So I'm sure everybody in this room, pretty much everybody has heard this commandment before. And um, we often think of it as cursing, swearing, taking oaths. And that's the end of the lesson. Any questions? No, I'm just kidding. I, I'm just kidding. What we're here to look at is there's much more than that. That's what we often think about, about our language, how we speak, how we use the, the name of the Lord uh, in our everyday world. We hear it. We see it in movies and, and all through the popular culture, how the name of the Lord is often used and misused. And, you know, it's, it's disturbing, but that's often the way we think about it. We also think about it in terms of oaths and vows. We take oaths and vows in various ways, whether it's becoming a church member. We take five vows. I'm sure you all have memorized those. You remember that's exactly what they are. Uh, we take marriage vows. Um, so we, we often do these things. We, if, we, if we testify in court, we take a vow. It used to be you put your hand in the Bible. I don't know if they do that anymore used to be. Do we have our lawyer here? Yes. They still hold it. You have your choice. Okay. You can swear to God if you, if you want to. Or yeah. So we, we think in those terms. But this morning what I want to sh share with you is uh, a little bit different thinking. And it comes from a, a book uh, that was published about a year and a half ago. It's based on a dissertation by Carmen Imes, who uh, did a PhD at Wheaton College and uh, actually had the same ad advisor, Dan Block, that uh, our son Matt had when he did his PhD in Old Testament there. And Carmen uh, uh, studied the Third Commandment. That's what her dissertation was about. You can actually buy it on Amazon. Uh, you need to know Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and Arcadian. So you may want to avoid that, that book, <laughs> and you may want to uh, you'll get her more popular book, which is out now, 
called Bearing God's Name. And in that book, uh, Why Sinai, Sinai Still Matter, uh, which is subtitled, but in that book, Carmen um, analyzes the historical and grammatical use of language in this very short commandment that, that's in Exodus 20. And in it, she discovers that the English word take probably is the wrong word to use. And it'd be more accurate to say that we lift up or carry the name. But that sounds kind of odd. We don't think about carrying names or lifting up names um, you know, in that way. Uh, so uh, it's a little bit different thinking. But she um, uh, analyzed this, and it's, uh, that's what her dissertation is entirely about. So we're going to examine that and see how that connects. We want to start with the, the coherence of the commands. We've looked at the prologue. We've looked at the first commandment and the second commandment, and now the third commandment. And there's a coherence of these commands. We often think of them as being very separate. First of all, they're not numbered like that. We do that. Uh, this is Yahweh speaking to his people. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's connections uh, between the prologue. First, he's introducing himself. I'm Yahweh, your God, your rescuer, the one who saved you. That's who I am. You shall have no other gods before me. He's separating himself from the rest of the culture the rest of all the pantheons of gods in virtually every culture. Uh, back then and even moving to the forward, uh, people groups make images of gods that they believe rule their world. And sometimes there's often many, many gods. Uh, there was even a rat god in Egypt. I'm not exactly sure why, but uh, there was one. And thirdly, you should not make the one we looked at last time with Sean, you shall not make yourself a carved image and so forth. Uh, and we think of that as the image prohibition. And also not to worship those as a part of that prohibition. You don't make them and you don't worship them. And then finally now, don't misuse my name. Now in the context of uh, the Israelites, it is important to think about because Think about their situation. They're in bondage and slavery for 400 years. It started well with Joseph being promoted and having a lot of authority. But somewhere along that 400 years, it changed dramatically. And they became more and more and more enslaved to the point where we read the account in Exodus of their situation was pretty grim pretty difficult. But 400 years, just think about it. I mean, the United States has only been around for 250. There's only been people from Europe who colonized this, this land uh, 400 years. So it, it, this has been a long time in this culture and this, in this time that they were at. In a sense, we can see that Yahweh is reorienting them to who they are, what their identity is, and who their God is. And in fact, who the only true God there is. As we've seen in our study of kings, there is a battle 
between people groups in terms of whose God is strongest, whose God is true, who, whose God wins. And over and over again, Yahweh is showing that I am the only true God. You shall have no other gods before me. It's also important in our context to understand where we are and, in effect, also where they were as Israelites later on when they basically abandoned the faith in Yahweh and fell into idolatry and, in fact, worshiping other gods and, in fact, making images and, in fact, bowing down to them. It becomes important to, to understand where we are in our fallen state where we started out at the beginning, what God's intention in creating us was for. So we're going to look at both um, the creation and creator distinction in Romans 1. Uh, but and then after that, we're going to look at Genesis 1 um, to just remember what an image bearer is. So in Romans, Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of the God for a lie, truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul here is giving a summary of man's fallen nature. We've become fools. Uh, we make our own view of God instead of the one he graciously has given us. We basically become the pot telling the potter What's, on, what's going on? What's real? In Isaiah 29, 16, God says to the people, you turn things upside down. <laughs> Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. And lest we think we're reading about other people, this is the same world, same God, we're the same kind of people. It's important for us to keep that in mind. Especially when you think of, well, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done what the Israelites did in the desert after God had done all these marvelous things. Hmm. Probably would have. So let's look at the creation um, mandate. It really has three aspects. There's a plan, there's a scope, and there's a blessing in the creation. Going back to Genesis chapter 1, 26, then God said, let, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So that was the plan. The Godhead had reasoned this is what they're going to do. We're going to make this creature who is in our image, in our likeness. Secondly, the scope. In the next verse, verse 27, God gives us the scope of his plan. He created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And it's, it's important to note, especially in our age, I think, that um, creating Eve, creating a female, was not a kind of like, oh, gee whiz, you know, I forgot something. No, that was always part of the scope. Uh, both male and female, both man and woman, are intended to rule as co-regents uh, over the creation, this good creation that God was make, had made. Then the third aspect is being, of being God's image is the blessing. In verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This gives us the implication of, of what God's image, being God's image means. Um, be fruitful, increase, fill, subdue, and rule. And it's interesting to note that one thing he doesn't say in this, you, you're going to subdue and rule over all these creatures and this creation that I've made. But he doesn't say, I want you to subdue and rule each other. They are meant to rule the creation together in cooperation. They were designed to work side by side in their creation mandates of increasing, filling, subduing, and ruling. Now, taking that forward, we see where people got off track. <laughs> and they started to make images. Uh, and this is typical of a ancient Near Eastern um, people group where they have a king, a ruler, some sort of potentate, uh, whatever their title is, and uh, they make a statue to him. And it was very typical. They put these statues all around the conquered territory where the, the king had conquered, and that was to signify to, to the people that lived there as well as any interlopers that this was this guy's territory. And almost invariably, it was men. This is their territory. This is where they belong. Um, and this is who they belong to. It was meant to, to project power and authority over that particular piece of land. In this case, this is actually one in, in uh, the uh, 9th century uh, BC, yeah, around 850 BC. And this was the king of Guzan in northeastern Syria area. And his name was Hadad Yif. And it literally means, Hadad is my salvation. So it was very common for kings in the ancient Near East not only to coronate themselves through their conquering, through their power, but then to deify themselves, to project an image of, of godlikeness 
or in fact they were a deity, they were gods. And again, that elevated their authority and their power, and they and children were raised up to to worship the king as though they were a god. And we know this even from if you had history of Western civilization and high school, college, that the Roman Empire, for example, the, the emperor at various stages was uh, deemed as a, as a god and were called upon to worship them. And many Christians lost their lives because they refused to bow down to the Roman Empire and worship him as a, as a deity. They could not do that. And worship was very different uh, in the ancient world. This is an a, a illustration of a typical Egyptian temple. And you see back in the, the back where the red circle is, is a statue in very prominent position. Um, and there's a priest in the foreground there. It looks like with his hands raised up. You know, it's a very nice looking temple. Uh, <laughs> and this was very typical. The concrete or stone statue would be in this temple and this would be part of the worship of that people group um, that they could see and touch. And this, in, in part, explains why the Israelites, even after God had done these miraculous things and brought them out of bondage, they say, how could they you know, get a bunch of gold and make, make a golden calf and worship it? How could they do this? Well, that's after 400 years of this inf cultural influence, it was we need a God to protect us. We need a God that we can see and touch and that we can worship. And uh, being that food was pretty important, fertility was pretty important. So we need a God of fertility that signifies um, health and well-being and food and sustenance. And so that's, it was very easy for them to slip back into what they knew when Moses was absent for so long talking to the Lord on the mountain. Uh, so it's important to realize where they came from. Now, um, so we can basically take the first, the prologue, I'm your rescuer, I'm your God, I'm Yahweh, and you shall have no other gods before me, the first, what we call the first commandment, and the prohibition against images as the second commandment, and roll those together, basically, into one. Worship only Yahweh. Worship only Yahweh. And there's going to be no images because you're, you're, you're different. Because I'm different. I can't be captured in images. My glory, my power, my divine attributes cannot be made into something that you make. It can't be done. It diminishes me. And if it diminishes me, it diminishes you as my image bearers. He says from Isaiah 46, remember the former things, those of long ago, I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. And then all throughout the Bibles, there's issues with the, the idols where the prophets and the writers of the Bible talk about idols. In this case, uh, the prophet Isaiah speaking for God, tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? Tell us what the former things were. 
so that we may consider them and know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come. And that's the challenge that we saw uh, Elijah give in a way, isn't it? When, when he's challenging the gods of, of Ahab, Baal, and he's challenging them to do something. And they can't. <laughs> They're not real gods. They're just statues. They're just dumb and mute, and they just stand there. Um, so in this case, they, they can't tell us the future of what's to come. And that's one thing that's really distinctive about uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition and faith, both for Jews and for Christians, is we stand on, on a religious tradition that's built on history. It's falsifiable. You can, you can, if you can find something in history, the most prominent example is that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's an historical issue. Did he live? Did he die? Was he raised again? If you can prove that he didn't live, or he didn't really die, or he was not resurrected, our faith is falsifiable. No other religion puts that claim out there, very much mimicking what God has done in his drawing out of the Egyptians and building this faith in them. He wanted to establish himself not as a human king, human design king, but as the true king. And he would make, instead of dumb images and statues to place around his territory, he'd make living images, going back to the creation mandate. You're image bearers. And his purpose was to make images that are alive, that move and talk and represent him in the world and eventually cover the world. He's already made an image of himself. That's you and I. Okay. And just as a point of reference, you can see the difference even in the worship tabernacle and then later the temple of how it was designed. There is no statue. There is no likeness of God. What there are are symbols of his deliverance. The Ark of the Covenant had the staff of Aaron in it. It had the Ten Commandments, the showbread and the altar. And then you'll see in the back there's that curtain. That curtain separates the holy place, that front part of the tabernacle, from the holy of holies, the second part. And only the high priest could go into to the Holy of Holies and only a certain amount of time. But that curtain was the curtain that was split. Remember in the Gospels? What happened? Jesus was crucified. And he said, it's finished. He died. The curtain split. Why? Because now he has come with reconciliation between God and man. No longer did there have to be this elaborate process to have one man go in before Yahweh in the Holy of Holies to meet with Yahweh. And if they went in there with, uh, with uh, bad intentions or unrepentant sin, they could well die. So they actually had bells on the bottom of their cloak. You hear about that in Leviticus 9. Uh, and in case they might die. And they'd put a rope on their ankles. So if they were in there and they 
didn't hear the bells ringing, uh-oh, he croaked. Uh, so they'd have to pull him out uh, underneath the curtain. But now, with Jesus, the curtain is split open, and we have access to this holy God through Jesus. And that in itself is just amazing. And we're going to talk about priesthood for a little bit. But I want to revisit um, a verse that you have seen now for, I don't know when Dan introduced this, what, two years ago at least? Yeah, a long time ago when we were considering building the building, we started talking about 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And, of course, Dan has labored to make us understand, help us understand that that new building over there, it's great. You know, it's really great. I mean, it's just, but it's just steel and glass and concrete and wires, <laughs> things like that. It's going to be great, and it'll be great to be in there. And I can't wait. But that's not God's spiritual house. His spiritual house is built out of living stones. You and you and you, all of us. We're the living stones that God is building his spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices uh, to him in our going out into the world as his image bearers and name bearers. And this is where it comes back to, to Dr. Imes' uh, idea, is that the primary issue of the third commandment is not cussing, swearing, and vows and oaths. It's bearing the name. It's a holistic life of it. It's, it's an umbrella. You could say cussing, swearing, and oaths and vows are in that umbrella. Absolutely. We shouldn't do those things. It doesn't bring honor to God. It offends him. But it's much more than that. It's much more than that. As a holy priesthood, we have certain obligations. And that obligation is to honor his name in all aspects of our life. And you see, the last book of the Bible, Malachi, the famous Italian prophet, uh, says, For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The intention of Yahweh is still the same, that his image bearers would, and his name bearers would be made known far and wide to all the nations, tribes, and tongues. The whole earth is to be filled with his glory through his image bearers. So what does it mean to be God's image? Uh, well, it's a representative role. Um, we're adopted, uh, the kinship idea, we're adopted. We represent him, but we're also adopted by God. We're adopted as brothers and sisters uh, of Jesus. Uh, in Mark 3, uh, Jesus says, and he, Jesus, answered them, who are my mother, my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Is amazing, isn't it? God, 
the second person of the Trinity in the form of Jesus Christ, the man, the man God, is saying that you're his sister, that you're his brother. And together, later on, he teaches us our father. We're adopted. Jesus died for our sins. He redeemed us from the curse of sin. He forgives our sins. He gives us gifts, and he leads us to glory. Because of the sacrificial work, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And this, of course, implies that we may call him Jesus, our elder brother. And it's such a privilege to be called the siblings of the Son of God. So what is our, our mission as God's image? We're God's representatives appointed to cultivate and protect his good creation. That hasn't changed. That was the original mandate in creation, to rule, subdue, and rule well, not abuse, but rule over the creation and the creatures he made. And secondly, to restore a fractured relationship between God and humanity. We are not only representatives, we're ambassadorial representatives. We're ambassadors of the risen Christ. We're ambassadors as image and name bearers. Uh, we're going to our fellow Imago Dei, the, the, the fellow image bearers that are in the world, because every human being bears the image of God. No matter how depraved, no matter how awful they may be, they bear that image flawed and marred as it might be. But it is our hope and our desire that they become a name bearer, that they understand what their image bearing means and how they are to comport themselves. I want you to dip back into the Old Testament a little bit and to see, in case you, you hadn't uh, studied this for a while, in Exodus 28, uh, God tells us how the high priest is supposed to be dressed. And uh, in the very first part of it, he has a turban that is made out of gold with a gold plate. And it has a, a you notice that uh, in, the, in the middle it has a round circle. And in that circle is stamped, um, holy, belonging to Yahweh. That's what the, that Hebrew up there is for anybody that reads Hebrew. You'd read that and click right to left. So Yahweh is on the left. That's the first three letters. And then that little apostrophe with that upside down kind of L, that's it called a lamed. And that lamed is there to signify ownership. So this priest is saying on here, I belong to Yahweh. I am set apart. I am holy for Yahweh's service. And then in addition, um, he represents the people before Yahweh. In the same way, he has stones on his breastplate. These are one each for each tribe of Israel. And it's close to his heart. And in Exodus 28, 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. He bears, he carries the name of of Yahweh on his head and the names of the 12 tribes on his breastplate. In addition to that, he has on his shoulders, there's, you, can't, you can kind of see those little black things on his shoulders. Those were the names 
of the 12 tribes with a little Eleph in there, the Lamid, and uh, signifying that they belong to Yahweh. And those were on his shoulders. So Aaron is a type of Christ, a forerunner of the great high priest who truly perfects us or perfectly represents us to Yahweh and perfectly represents Yahweh to us. So in the same way that Aaron and then the following his sons and all the Levitical priesthood then on, they represented the people to Yahweh in the temple and they represented outside of the temple, they represented Yahweh to the people. And at the end, uh, we go to number. You'll see this, this often, this ironic blessing. This is what Yahweh told, um, uh, told Moses um, to tell Aaron and his sons. This is how you're to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord, which is Yahweh in this case, bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh, turn his face towards you and give you peace. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Very common benediction that ministers give at the end of their service or their, their preaching. Very common. But a lot of times we don't see this, the last verse here. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. They are blessed to carry, to bear the name of Yahweh. So um, we're going to go back to Exodus 27, that, that uh, verse, and this is actually uh, Carmen Imes' uh, translation. Um, no worries, she teaches Hebrew. She knows it very well. <laughs> you shall not bear the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not acquit one who bears his name in vain. So do not lift or carry the name. So the implication of taking a name has been somewhat overly represented in our speech, which is important, as I mentioned before. It's important uh, that our speech uh, does reflect uh, what it ought. But it's more than that. It's, it's a whole life thing. Now let's move on to the people. The people bear God's name. We saw how Aaron bear, physically bore the names of the people and bore Yahweh's name as his. Um, but Deuteronomy 26, 18 and 19, and the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession. And he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor above high above all nations that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord, Yahweh, your God, as he promised. There's the same Hebrew construction there, a people holy to the Lord, people holy belonging to the Lord, holy belonging to the Lord. Those people are holy belonging to the Lord. Same phrase that was on the turban of the high priest. He's claimed, Yahweh has claimed these people as covenant people. They're his. They're blessed to carry or bear his name to all the nations. 
that brings us to back to 1 Peter 2, how the living stones should live. In light of this, in light of our understanding of our identity in, in Christ now, in Yahweh, Peter says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stones, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like the Old Testament? The calling of Israel? You weren't much. You weren't a people. Of all the peoples, kind of you're, you know, kind of smaller. But I called you out to be mine. Not because of anything special you did, because I just decided to do that. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wages war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans which, that though they, they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And someday that picture of a holy priesthood, a holy nation, will be complete. And we can see that in Revelation 7, 9. Worship in the, in after what's called the eschaton, the end of time. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. It's a picture of heavenly worship at the conclusion of what God intends, that we live such good lives among the pagans that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we've got a few minutes left. I want to conclude with just a summary. We can roll the prologue and the first uh, two commandments into worship only Yahweh. And the second one we could summarize as represent him well. Carry his name well. Bear his name well in everything that we do. And as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we often read that and we kind of blow through that hallowed be your name. Well, I thought his name was holy. So why are we trying to make it holy? Why are we trying to hallow it? Because it's not on the planet. It's not complete. 
It is in some order. It is moving that way from the time that Jesus said this prayer to now. Billions of Christians have been hallowing God's name. And they're looking forward to that day when that kingdom comes, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The goal is to have his kingly reign here completed as it is in heaven. So we got a few minutes. Any comments or questions? Seems strange or new or different or the same or Well, thank uh, Carmen Imes. She she uh, works very very hard on this. She's really made a change, I think, in how we're going to translate the Bible from Hebrew to to English. Right now, I looked up uh, this week. I looked up I don't know twenty English versions, and they all had either well, they had predominantly take the name. Uh, a few, a f two or three of them had misused the name. Which, which is which is good. I mean, it, that, uh, but still, I think in our, in our typical Christian culture, um, not just in the United States but all over the planet, we often think of it just in that very limited way of of language swearing and uh, oaths and vows. You know, taking an oath or a vow uh, in the name of God is a serious thing, and if we take it not really seriously and we break it, that's a very serious thing. It's the same as cursing to God. We might as well just blaspheme because that's how serious he takes his name. And and we should take it seriously. So Scott.
Yeah, I was thinking it was kind of, a, I, I know I saw a basketball player or something that had a headband on and had written on something. I couldn't see what it was, but um, I was thinking, well, that'd be interesting. We could all go out to Walmart and get a headband and we could print on there, holy, belonging to Jesus. And wear it around it for a week as an experiment. We'd probably be on the news, right? Crazy Christian cult in North Raleigh has headbands. And they wear around, oh, these crazy people. And we, we could make it even more interesting. We could write it in Hebrew and then uh, really get them, get them talking. Yes, ma'am. Wesley thought that was pretty funny, the dirty diaper thing. Yes. Yes. You hear that? He's saying that we're carrying something very precious, and it seems like sometimes we carry it around like a dirty diaper, you know, and, you know, we want to get rid of it or hide it or throw it away or, or, or cover it up. Uh, but did I represent that correctly? But we really should be carrying it around as a, a precious stone, a precious diamond. And even that wouldn't capture the value of it, would it? Yeah. All right. Well, we're a little over, so let me uh, conclude this with prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have not only made us as your image bearers and sent us out in the world, but you further have sent Jesus to uh, call us to be his name bearers to, uh, to the ends of the earth. And uh, we long for that day when all the people groups around the world have, have uh, been represented in your kingdom. And whenever that is, uh, and we pray for perseverance to the end, to, to, to take the gospel message to whomever is in our path, uh, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our nation, around the world. And help us to have a more profound and circumspect thinking about our activities in the world and how we represent Jesus to those who don't know him, as well as to our fellow image bearers and name bearers, how we represent Jesus to them as well. Uh, we pray all this in his name.